I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. And welcome to another edition of the Aussie Wildlife Show live from Borneo. Adrian here, and I'm with, of course, Steve. G'day. And we're very lucky today to have with us Mr. Mark Hewitt. G'day. And Mark's been with us the entire trip, because if you're going to somewhere like Borneo, and there's a lot of really cool invertebrates, you need your very own private entomologist. Mark, it's pretty amazing stuff here. There certainly is. And you've had you've had your camera with you the whole time, capturing some wonderful shots of some of the uh, some of the inverts. Yes, definitely. And we might even uh, put some of the photos on the uh, website because there have been some amazing photographs. Now, uh, guys, it's our last day. We've had a pretty amazing time. We, mm. we fly out, don't we, today? <laughs> it's a bit hard, but uh, how's everyone feeling? Um, I'm all right. It's been an awesome trip. Rob, I don't know, possibly ready to go home, see my animals. So you might be staying. So I might stay. You must <laughs> Uh, it's definitely been awesome for me, and don't be surprised if you don't see me on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> now, we asked each other uh, before we, we flew out what would be the number one animal that you'd like to see, and I think I was pretty open, like, oh, anything new. I mean, it's all going to be new to me. You said the violin beetle, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. My speciality is uh, in ground beetles in Australia, and the violin beetle is uh, one of the... Uh, Arabs or ground beetles that is found in these parts of the world um, in sort of the more tropical areas and in rotting logs and things like that. Unfortunately we did not find any of them but uh, it doesn't matter because uh, it just gives me an excuse to come back. An excuse to come back. <laughs> That's fantastic. And we had we had a, a fair few conversations just uh, travelling from you know city to city about yes. stuff. You answered a few of my questions. There was... Um, a bit of a conversation about the difference between a moth and a butterfly. Now, there's a few basic differences that everybody learns, like a moth, when it's sitting or resting, its wings are, what would you call that, open? Yeah. And a butterfly, its wings are closed. Mm -hmm. And um, something about the antennae on a moth is... Butterflies are generally clubbed, whereas moths are, or they can be a range of, of like a filament type thing, or they can be uh, pectinate with feathery sort of antenna and things. Um, all of these differences that people generally refer to them, uh, almost, or almost all of them have exceptions. And so um, any you can pick any one of those differences and there will be butterflies that have traits from a moth and moths that have traits from a butterfly. So, for example, you mentioned the wings being held flat on a moth, whereas butterflies tend to hold them uh, upright over their body. Well, there are also moths that hold them upright and butterflies that hold them flat. Um, same with butterflies are usually nocturnal. Um, uh, sorry, moths are usually nocturnal, whereas butterflies are diurnal. Um, but there are exceptions to that even. There are uh, nocturnal butterflies and diurnal moths. Um, the clubbed antenna, um, there is a group of moths called sun moths, which are uh, particularly prevalent in Australia, um, which look identical to butterflies. They have the clubbed antenna, they, have, they hold the wings upright, and to any person sort of looking at them, they would swear it's a butterfly, but it's a moth. Ah, uh, <laughs> sneaky. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> See, throwing everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically there's no real 
sort of definitive difference between the two. Um, but the the most prevalent feature, and again, this also has exceptions, but the most prevalent feature is the way that the, the, the moths or butterflies um, couple their wings in flight. Um, basically, a butterfly will flap its four wings fairly independently of each other, and that gives it incredible manoeuvrability um, you know, to, to be able to turn and twist and sort of give that sort of almost random flight that butterflies have, whereas moths will tend to couple their wings together and use them as a single wing on each side, um, which means that they're far better at flying in a straight line really quickly um, as opposed to the more sort of fluttering movement of a moth, uh, of a butterfly. And the moths, um, to do this, they have a little uh, feathery hook um, on their wings, which actually helps to couple those two together while they're flying. And that's probably the most um, consistent of the features that, that differentiates the two. That's interesting. It's one of the first things you notice when you, when you arrive at any of the forests, it, it, the butterflies here, and they're big, they're diverse, they're beautiful. And you're saying they move their front wings, back wings independently more? Yeah, it's not, it's, coupled. It's not completely independent, um, but it is uh, far more independent than, than the moth. So essentially they have four wings sort of, you know, um, yeah, manoeuvring around, which, which gives them that sort of, you know, they can turn around on a dime. Um, you, know, it's, it's, you know, if you ever try to net a butterfly, um, they're actually more difficult than you know than they would appear to look at them. They just look like they're just randomly you know just fluttering around with no sort of you know direction to their flight. But yeah, if you ever try and net them, they they'll evade you quite. Oh, wow. uh, I assume they be well. really simple. To no, they're, they're actually not. They're actually not. You really have to develop a technique to yeah, to, to net them. Yeah, that's probably so they don't get eaten, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's one of the interesting things because um, there have been uh, uh, various militaries around the world actually study um, the flight of butterflies um, because they've got they've worked out that butterflies can fly from one point to another so that they actually head in a direction, but their flight is almost random in order to get there. And so, if you could develop a a system whereby you could you know, launch something from one point to another in that random sort of a way, it would completely evade, you know, your your enemies sort of, uh, you know, counteracts. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so the unpredictability. Yeah, it's, a, it's an unpredictable sort of flight path to a, you know, a specified point that they, they do. I see that at home because we raise potteroos and betongs and you'll find like if it wants to go from A to B it won't go in a straight line it'll go the most complicated way it'll go under through around you know through a very tiny gap and it's like it makes the hardest obstacle course for itself because it commits it to memory and then the predator that's chasing it in theory um, has got doesn't have that area committed to memory so I can see how that exactly. makes sense yes interesting and at night time all the moths are attracted to the lights we know that uh, yes, not all. Not but all. Yes, yeah, many, many moths are. Always exceptions. Yes, yeah, always exceptions. I think he knows the question that's coming next. Let's go, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> what is the difference between a duck? <laughs> that's true, you're steved. <laughs> but, but, I mean, we, we, we're told, are we led to believe that that's the moon guiding these animals, or no? It's, um, it's a bit of a mystery um, as to um, exactly why the, the lights, um, or why they're attracted to lights, or why it interferes with their flight. Um, one of the theories is that um, originally, or they, they evolved to use the moon 
uh, to navigate from one point to another. Um, and with the, you know, the the advent of artificial lights that we've created, that interferes with them, and you know, it, it doesn't really, um, you know, help them much. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I mean, most moths and butterflies will feed as adults on uh, nectar, and um, flowers will produce a range of various colours to attract these things in. Um, to try and advertise their nectar and, and they use UV a lot in this sort of thing so what might look like a simple white flower to us will be a brilliant you know sort of glowing flower to the butterfly or moth uh, and moths you know likewise uh, it's quite obvious with butterflies but moths also use this at night to feed um, so they will seek out the UV signature of various plants to feed on and so there is a, a possibility that the lights that we turn on actually look like giant flowers to them and they may be coming in to feed um, but you know when they do come in they, they, they tend to just settle and rest and that so you know it may have nothing to do with feeding it's it's just one of those mysteries that no one's really nutted out yet yeah and you go out and do biological surveys and you collect insects What's the best light to use? Is it called sheeting, where you put up a sheet? Yeah, there's a couple of different methods. There's light trapping, uh, where you can set up a, a container, basically, um, with a light, and it'll just collect everything. Um, and they're sort of used more in the, you know, the, the museums and institutions and that, where they want a full-on... Uh, collection of everything that's around. Um, what I tend to do is the sheet method. Um, so you basically put up a big white sheet and either in front of it or shining onto it you'll have various lights um, and the the lights that are rich in UV um, are the ones that, that work best. So if you have a mercury vapour lamp for example that emits a huge amount of UV you put that in front of a white sheet and you'll get things from, you know, from 20, 30, 40 metres away, possibly even further, um, all coming into the sheet uh, because they see this brilliant, you know, white light. Um, but some insects won't be attracted to that. They'll, um, you know, they'll come into a different sort of light. So there's a certain type of beetle in Australia um, that people use uh, the old gas pressure lamps um, like uh, you used to take camping. Um, and these particular beetles will only come to that wavelength of light. They won't come to a UV light, they won't come to a white light, they'll just come to this gas pressure lamp. Mm. And so, yeah, and, and, you know, not all insects are attracted to light anyway. So, you know, um, yeah. So someone's got, a say, a pet bearded dragon at home and they've got a UV 10 globe that you'd use yep. for such an animal. If they were to put that outside, put a sheet in front of it, what could they expect to find on their properties? Um, they, if they're in an area where there's um, a lot of moths around and they're attracted to the porch light, it would certainly be well worth doing because um, the variety of moths that they would get would all of a sudden increase, you know, with, with that sort of, uh, you know, extra UV light emitted from those globes um, but yeah it, it all comes down to where you are and what's around at the time and the the season and the rain especially uh, insects are really triggered by rain um, particularly things like moths and beetles um, which undergo uh, what they call complete metamorphosis so they spend their their juvenile part of their life as a caterpillar or a grub or something uh, and then they'll turn into a, a pupa before they emerge as the adult. And in that stage of being a pupa, they'll sit there in almost a diapause state, just waiting for the right conditions. And so as soon as you get a good rain event, all of a sudden you'll be inundated with moths everywhere 
and that's how they do it because they're basically sitting there ready to go waiting for that time and that triggers their food source yeah well it's um it, it, usually the the emergences of the adults um is for for mating that's the main purpose for them emerging um so that it, the rain itself is the trigger, oh, meaning okay. that the plants will then start to grow so that um, the, once the adults emerge, they can mate, lay their eggs, knowing that the plants will be growing in, you know, two weeks when the eggs hatch or, oh, okay. or whatever. Very interesting. So their main thing in life at that point is to mate. Yeah, the, the adult form is... is usually purely just to mate um, very few insects that undergo complete metamorphosis will have a, a long-lived adult life um, they will mostly just be uh, a larva for 90 percent of their life and then the the adult form just to mate and wow. lay eggs and you were saying some of these adults don't even eat yeah yeah well that's uh, some of them are so short-lived that they'll only live for a, a day or two days or something and there's some really interesting beetles uh, in the Australian outback um, which may remain underground for years at a time until the conditions are perfect for them and they'll emerge and you, you may only you know, see them for a matter of hours sometimes, uh, like even while it's raining or immediately after rain and then you, know, you may not see the adults again for, for several years. Very small windows. We've got frogs like that, haven't we, that, that yeah. virtually hatch yeah. out as frogs? Yeah, stick insects. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. One, of the, one of the nights at Sepulok we went for a rainforest night walk and there was that, was it a glow beetle? Oh, the fireflies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they're kind of interesting. They're a type of beetle. Um, and, yeah, they, they uh, have a special sort of luminescent bacteria in their abdomen. Uh, and they can control the, the luminescence of it, basically. And each species of, of these um, beetles or fireflies... Um, have a um, it's it's almost like a Morse code I guess amongst the species each one will have a particular pattern to its flash uh, and that's obviously a mating call for the females um, but yeah each, each species will have its own version of that flash and you can you can track which species are out there if you know what's in your area just from their their flashes and how often they're flashing and sort of the code to which they're flashing so you know for example they might give three flashes and then a pause and you know things like that that's hilarious normally when we flash steve we don't get any females I, attention I <laughs> oh, <you> they, <laughs> they all turn away <laughs> is it the attention we want no, not some attention from their boyfriends normally <laughs> but uh, i was in tassie one year and we we saw glow worms are they related at all to these glow beetles uh no no glow worms are a, a different sort of animal they uh from what i believe they mainly live in caves uh, yeah they were areas like that they sort of hang from the cave roof and i i think they're more of a uh, an actual worm um, sort of thing and they basically just hang from the cave with their light and see this is a good example of the, their light being used to attract insects because that's the purpose of their light it's not so much a mating call like the firefly but it's used to attract any small insects that are in the cave and they'll fly towards that light and the glow worms themselves have a like a sticky mucusy um, sort of membrane almost and as soon as an insect touches that then it's trapped it's like a wow yeah where they both glow yeah emit light is it the same way that they do it um i'm not sure with the glow worm um not being an insect it's sort of yeah a little bit out of my realm but i would imagine it would be uh, some sort of luminescent bacteria um i think there's quite a few animals around particularly in the ocean that utilize um 
yeah, bacteria um, to, 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 yeah, to create this bioluminescence. Very cool. One of the things that you really notice when you come here is the sounds at night. Mm-hmm. The cicada, the cicadas. Um, at night, it's a uh, during the day it's usually cicadas. At night, it's a combination of both cicadas and katydids. Um, katydids are like um, large crickets, I guess, and they can be quite elaborate, um, looking like leaves. Or I think you know we saw a few that that look quite spectacular. Some of them like dead leaves. Some of them like brilliant green leaves and. Yeah, things like that. Um, that's all mating calls, um, basically. Yeah, just trying to, to bring in the females. And, and these things are all on steroids. They're huge. <laughs> <laughs> they are deafening. Yes. Well, um, the, the tropical areas are really the where the insects really show their diversity. Um, and part of the reason for that is their, their breathing system. Um, insects don't have lungs like us. They don't actively breathe in air. Um, basically they have a tube that runs down the, the middle of their body and from that radiates various um, smaller tubes or capillaries or you know you could call them whatever um, and some of these um, go right to the outside of the insect um, and they if you look on the side of a caterpillar especially they're probably most notable in um, the the holes will actually be visible on the outside of the animal and they're called spiracles and these things they can open and close as they please but what basically happens is um, air will just pass straight into the insect's body through these little holes and the oxygen is absorbed straight into the bloodstream it doesn't go via a lung or anything like that it just it's just straight into the insect it's just absorbed naturally and this is where in the tropics because the air is so moist and humid uh, that's done really efficiently and really easily and so insects can get to far larger proportions here than what they can in say a desert area or something like that oh, wow so mm. back in the mesozoic era mm-hmm. we had some giant dragonflies and other insects is that correct there were um, even even before the the mesozoic back in the permian um, sort of era uh, around then is when some of the largest dragonflies existed. Um, I think the largest one on record is just over 700 millimetre wingspan, so over two feet <laughs> wingspan. Um, my, keep in mind, most insects from around them were still of the same proportions as today, but yeah, there were some true giants. Yeah. Some freaks. Yeah. Yeah. By contrast, the largest dragonfly today is actually, well, it's actually a damselfly that lives in um, South America, and that gets up to, I think it's about 190 millimetres, so less than a third of the size of... Still pretty, pretty It's still pretty, pretty big. Yeah. I'm glad they're not about now because I had to climb a tree last night <laughs> to, to get a snake down. When you got attacked by cigars. attacked by cigars. <laughs> they were smashing me in the face. And I'm yeah. glad that, yeah, it See, wasn't back then. That was, that was an interesting thing where uh, the light, being attracted to light, came into play because all those cicadas were actually resting. Um, and they were just sitting on the leaves, just sleeping, basically. And when yeah. you obviously climb this tree um, to catch this diagonal. this beautiful snake, um, yeah, they disturbed all these cicadas. And, of course, the first thing that they see is this brilliant light, so they all just want to be towards this light. And, of course, the light happened to be in the middle of your face. So. <laughs> it it so, wasn't yeah. pleasant. And I was really starting to think, are these cicadas, would they do that? What's going on? Well, we were, we're going, oh, God, I hope they are. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's nothing else there. 
<laughs> it amused us. If nothing else, it amused us. And then I turned to where I put my hand on a branch and there were ants that were probably an inch long. <laughs> oh, no. What did I do this for? And I'm chasing a snake that at that point we couldn't completely see, so we didn't know if it was venomous. <laughs> what are you doing, Steve? <laughs> Get down, go home. We were desperate. It was the last night. Yeah, the <laughs> last, last night. chance. And, and probably one of the best finds, I reckon. Yeah, yeah it certainly was. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to the noises these animals make, like the cicadas and the katydids, how are they making that noise? Um, it depends on what, what sort of insect it is. Um, some insects will rub their wings uh, against a, a file or a rasp, which is on the, um, I think it's on the last um, thoracic segment, um, or it, the first abdominal segment. It's somewhere towards where the wings are join up, basically. Um, and in the case of that being a file, then the, the wings will have a corresponding sort of rough patch where they can rub that against. Um, others um, will rub um, other parts of their body together, like beetles are well known to stridulate, it's called. Um, when you pick them up, they'll squeak, and some of the big rhinoceros beetles will do that, and a lot of other scarabs will do that. Um, but they basically rub a, a rough patch on the last part of their abdomen, uh, against the, the back of their wing cases. And uh, in some of these, if you have a look at them under a microscope and that, you can actually see these these sort of um, lines uh, across there, which is, yeah, just gives them that sort of rough thing so that they can rub it really quickly and, yeah, they uh, can come up with some really interesting little squeaks. It's so effective, it. isn't it? Yeah, but it, but it sounds so small, like what we're talking yeah. about now, but the noise that can come well, out of some of them things, is things amazing. like cicadas, and especially the drummer cicadas, have these huge um, air sacs uh, on the side of their abdomens as well, which amplifies that sound. Right. And so, you know, they might produce a sort of reasonable sound on their own, but then you put it through these amplifiers and they're some of the loudest insects on the planet. They've got little built-in amplifiers. Yeah, yeah, and you can see them as these these big sort of bulges on the side, and and you can that's how you tell the males from the females because the females won't have that. The males will have these really obvious, yeah, big bulges, which are just basically you know amplifiers. Yeah, and the louder the better for the females. And the well, um, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's a. Um, a matter of them sort of being louder or not but it's certainly the louder they are the further away they can be cold and so the females can come in from further away uh, yeah there was a you mentioned ants some of the ants here are just ridiculous <laughs> aren't they like you, we get inch ants at home because i think they'll just pick my foot up oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> steal your lunch money yeah. <laughs> they're ridiculous um and the, the tarantulas the other night yes in yeah. the burrows yeah so they, a few they of those. Were pretty good yeah yeah and the giant forest scorpion. i said what's this scorpion called and it was a giant forest scorpion yeah, yeah. It makes sense. and it was giant it was and it was in the forest yeah it yeah. was and it was a scorpion but that was huge yeah I, was. I wish that we could have yeah got that out and had a had yeah a that because that was humongous well mark had his uv light too, yes yeah it looked awesome what were those other pseudo scorpions uh the whip scorpions, whip scorpions. um yeah they're fairly common here there was something that um uh, these aren't insects these these guys of course but uh yeah it was something that i hadn't even um you know, in the back of my mind i knew that they were here but it was something that i didn't even think of when we were here until i saw them and i thought oh well yeah there's whip scorpions here of course <laughs> cool um but they're basically yeah a, just a different group um they sort of resemble scorpions in that they've got these funny little pinches 
um, and they've got the similar sort of body plan to a scorpion, but they don't have the the um, the big thick tail with a stinger. Instead, they've got like a little filament for a tail um, that just sort of points away from the animal. They don't use it for defence or anything like that. Um, but yeah, they they're just a, a really cool looking cool looking animal. Yeah, cool. Is it true that the bigger the scorpion, the less toxic it is? Um, it, Yes and no. Um, the, what what you got to look for with scorpions is uh, the pinches. Really, the the scorpions that have the really big, fat, chunky pinches that you know would just crush anything. Uh, generally, you don't have to worry about them so much because they that's their primary weapon. Um, so they'll you know amble about, and when they find a beetle or something in the undergrowth, they'll just crush it with those things. They don't rely on their sting to um, to, to envenomate it. Um, whereas if you look at some scorpions, they've got really tiny little pinches, um, and those are the ones that will generally have a really big, wide, fat tail, um, and they're the ones that you have to watch out for because um, you can tell that um, they don't use their pinches as their primary weapon, which means what they do is they'll use their pinches to just hold onto something while they swing their tail over and envenomate it. Um, and so, yeah, they're the ones that carry sort of the most toxin uh, out of them. And they're, they're, some of those can get quite large still. Um, I think in Mexico there's a really large species out there. But in general, um, if you look at the claws and look at the tail, um, big claws and small tail means not that dangerous. Small claws and big tail, well, yeah, look out for it. Look out for that. <laughs> I'll get that mixed up one day. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We saw uh, the other night, we were lucky enough to see flying squirrels, which are a gliding rodent. Yes. I actually witnessed one glide through the canopy off a 40-metre tree. It was incredible. And uh, and there's regular squirrels. And we know that through evolution, through being able to jump and jump further and slowly evolving the ability to glide, yep. and those animals become successful and so on and so forth. And that then leads to the evolution of flight. Mm-hmm. And we see it with um, bats. Mm-hmm. Uh, birds and things. What about invertebrates? They they can fly. Yes. Did they start off jumping from tree to tree, or was it jumping from the ground? And you see, like crickets, how they jump and yeah, jump a long way. Or do we it, not know? This is a bit of a mystery. Um, basically, insects first evolved around 480 million years ago, and um, somewhere between then and about 410 million years, flight evolved. Now, the fossil record's so incomplete that and no one really has a, a transitional species to be able to tell for sure how it developed. Um, what they do know is that it's um, it, flight and insect evolved once. So all flying insects all evolved from a common ancestor. Um, and so whatever that, that species was that made that transition, um, we're still yet to find. Um, with mammals, um, you can always see uh, like a bat for example you know it's it's a modified finger on a bat or with a bird it's a modified um, like forelimb sort of thing Uh, with insects it's not because insects haven't lost any of their um, appendages in order to attain flight so it's something that it has developed sort of independently almost so uh, how it came about is still very much a point of contention Um, it was probably um, to do with evading predators it certainly coincided with them coming onto land um, and they developed it not long after coming onto land 
but yeah how how it actually developed is yeah is there's a million theories out there for it it's interesting <laughs> very interesting are there any other flying invertebrates or is it just some of the, or most of the no. insects yeah just the insects the insects are the only uh, group of arthropods that have developed flight and are they the biggest group of invertebrates on the planet um yes yeah by far yeah and and out of those um beetles alone outnumber all other insect groups so basically two out of every five species on the planet is a beetle um so the beetles are you know far more successful um than any other you know group of insect even and insects altogether you know out far outnumber anything on the planet even plants i I believe Whoa. Yeah. And we don't know how many species there are, like, do we? There's there's over a million described species. Um, estimates for how many undescribed ones still remain vary from anywhere between sort of three to five million right up to 30 million, wow. um, just depending. I think 30 million is probably a bit out there. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, it'll almost certainly between, you know, be between sort of three and, say, eight million, something like that. I think that would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of these would be, you know, tiny things that people don't don't sort of realise. I think there was one BioBlitz um, study that was conducted uh, a little while back, um, and just on that one, you know, trek alone, they found something like 70 undescribed wasps. You know, just in this in this one little patch over a period of a few days. So it gives you an idea of just how many things are out there that yeah that are undescribed. Wow, <laughs> seventy on one incredible day. What's what's the biggest living invertebrate today? Biggest living invertebrate. Um, spider crab thing? Yeah, well, there's... Um, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but, yeah, there's certainly spider crabs with, uh, you know, a, a leg span of several feet. Um, there are... Well, actually, no, I, I think the biggest living invertebrate would have to be the giant squid. Whoa, yeah, oh, cool just just sort of thought of that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I don't think well, there would be anything bigger than that one. What, what would be the most dangerous invertebrate around today? Oh, okay. well, it depends on how you define danger, really. Um, a giant squid could certainly be dangerous <laughs> to you. But, uh, what, what's the most dangerous to us? What, what kills the most humans? Would it be um, mosquitoes? Yeah, well, uh, traditionally over time, mosquitoes have, have killed more um, people than, you know, than... than just about anything I think um, and that's but that's not directly through mosquitoes themselves that's from the diseases that they carry um, and things like that um, you know you could look at things like bees and ants and things people have some pretty severe reactions and fatal reactions sometimes to things like that um, but yeah there's there's a whole you know whole range of things but yeah certainly mosquitoes take the, the cake for you know having uh, attributed the most deaths to them over over time of course these days it's not uh, as much of an issue as it used to be in the past um, with all the vaccines and antidotes and things that we have now um, but still you know there's a lot of countries out there where they don't have access to to things like that and you know mosquitoes still kill a lot of people what about spiders? So many people are scared of spiders. Are they uh, around the world? Yeah, I mean, spiders are known around the world and generally feared around the world for, you know, for nasty bites and, you know, killing people and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's it's more hype than anything. I mean, you know, in reality, how often do you hear of people sort of dying from spider bites and things? You know, it's 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 more... It's like snakes, you mm. know. It's yeah. the... It, 
you know, they're out there, and yes, they can be very dangerous, but in general, they're, if they're left alone, they're in fine. In Australia, we're pretty right up. We've not too many deaths from snake bite. No. Unlike a lot of countries. No. Considering I, we have some of the most, you know, venomous creatures around, whether you look at spiders or, you know, snakes or, you know, even in the oceans, you know, yeah, you've got jellyfish. octopus and cone snails and jellyfish and things. Yeah. It's it's a fairly rare event when, you know, something like that reaches a, a fatality sort of stage. Yeah. So going uh, back to your area, beetles, mm-hmm. what would be, would there be any beetles that are dangerous to, um, to humans? There are certainly toxic beetles. Um, it, it'd be more poisonous than venomous. Um, beetles don't have, don't really have the ability to yeah. inject venom. Um, so there are many that are poisonous um, and they advertise this usually with uh, brilliant colours and patterning um, and you can usually tell them um, because of that. Um, then there are a lot of beetles that copy that as well um, to try and uh, you know, get their protection um, by trying to pretend that they're, they're something that's poisonous or distasteful. Um, don't lick any of them. No, that's right. But then you also get really interesting ones like the bombardier beetles, um, and they, they actually produce a chemical reaction which, if you disturb them, they'll mix two chemicals together while they shoot them out towards you, and these two chemicals, when they react, creates a really severe burning. Um, and so to us, it's just a little puff of smoke, but if you ever get you know that on your finger or something like that, it actually really does burn. <laughs> What you, a crazy we, we, had, we found one of those. Yes, we found one of those yeah, out at Sepperlock yeah. there that yeah. I was yeah, I was showing you, you guys. It, yeah. Yeah. It's quite loud when it lets it go. Yeah, it's well. quite an audible <laughs> little pop. Yeah. yeah. And it's the the chemicals involved, I you know, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but yeah, they they're like some horrific, you know, mixture of benzene yeah. and this and that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, and there's you know, little innocuous beetles carrying this around in its arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> Are you surprised that a lot of people love keeping Invertebrates like giant cockroaches and millipedes. When I've I've always been interested in insects my whole life, and my the biggest thing that I wanted when I was a kid was one of the giant goliath stick insects from up north, you know, up in Darwin and Queensland and that. Um, And you you just couldn't get them. You know, it was impossible. You had to go and collect them yourself if you wanted them. And being a kid, of course, that wasn't an option. Um, So I am a little surprised these days at just how things have taken off. Um, And I think it's largely to do with the communications that we have now with the internet and everything. Nowhere's sort of too far away. uh, And it's easier to talk to people that you don't even know. Um, and so it sort of puts people in contact a bit more. Um, It's a little bit concerning because... um, when you sort of make these things available, it puts a price on them. And when a price is on anything, it, it endangers it to a degree because then you'll get people going out collecting them because they're worth money and you know not necessarily collecting them because they're interested in it. Uh, and I think if people who were interested in it you know, went out and collected stuff for themselves, it's not so much of an issue, but when you've got people going out collecting for money, you know, and they're obviously after as many spe- you know, specimens as they can and as many different species as they can to maximise their little outing, then that's when it becomes a, you know, a real issue, I think. Yeah, hoarding them up to sell them. Yeah. Some of the, you're saying some of those uh, giant millipedes here would be great pets. Oh, that'd be fantastic. They would be fantastic. Is it the tractor? There was the tractor millipedes, wow. which yeah, I, they like something straight out of the, the you know the Jurassic sort of thing. That's <laughs> probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in the insect world. Like, 
that, yeah. that thing is just crazy. We'll get some pictures up. Of yeah, that. not yeah. not not insects, but uh, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the invert world, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that it, some of the millipedes were just amazing. Even in that um, that Gomantong cave yeah. that we went to, um, and like they just look like ordinary millipedes, but they're like three times the size, mm. and they were just phenomenal. And you know the little pill pill bugs, I think they call them, uh, which roll up into like a perfect little ball, and yeah, yeah, just amazing. Like an armadillo. Yeah. Mate, thank you. Thank you for your time. No problem. Awesome. Been a pleasure. Yeah, Thanks. great trip. We're going to now go sit on planes for hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's suck it in. The last <laughs> few <laughs> moments here. Get going. In yeah. tropical Borneo, sitting covered in sweat. I hope you appreciated that, guys. Yes. You have no idea what we look like. <laughs> <laughs> or how we smell. <laughs> yeah. I reckon they'll smell us. No, thanks a lot, Mark. No worries. Amazing. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening, guys.